This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. This morning we're going to talk about what happened before Genesis. Uh, We'll get into a little bit about Genesis and then what happens after Genesis. But the primary focus this morning is talking about in the beginning, what's the next word? God. In the beginning, God. Uh, you'll need your Bibles, but we're not going to look at a lot of verses of Scripture this morning. Uh, well, there are a lot of verses of Scripture, and you'll see them in your notes. How many, does anybody need the handout? Everybody have the handout? All right. Uh, The handout is kind of extensive, and I did that intentionally. In fact, I like my handouts to be a little bit more uh, informative and a little bit more extensive than a lot of handouts are. But in spite of the fact of the name Genesis, what does the name Genesis mean? Beginning. Beginning, that's right. And, um, And in spite of its position in the Bible, which is the very first book in the Bible, that really is not the first thing. Something became, something was, something was there before Genesis. And that, of course, is God. The very first statement in the book of Genesis is, in the beginning, God. God existed before Genesis did. The record of God's creation and so on. Um, so before we study uh, the, basic, the basics are laid down for us here in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Uh, this was, uh, uh, we, we need to get acquainted. We need to acquaint ourselves with what happened before Genesis. And then after that, we'll examine what happened uh, in, the record, in the recording of Genesis. And then finally, what happens after the book of Genesis. And all of this will prepare us for our study of the entire Bible, the, study, the, the entire revelation of God. And, um, and I hope it will be gratefully helpful. Roman numeral one, the first uh, f- blank to fill in there, is this. Before Genesis, redemption planned. You realize that God planned redemption before he ever created we, f- we learn that in our study of the book of Genesis. In fact, in the study of, our, of the entire Bible, and we'll see some of that unfold today. But God was very much at work before he created. And it's wonderful to see that. God was active before Genesis. So what was happening before God spoke the universe into existence? Now, that may seem like uh, an impractical, hypothetical question, but the truth is it's not at all. After all, God... God didn't act arbitrarily. And in fact, that, the fact that he created something suggests that he must, have, he must have some magnificent purpose in mind in his creation. Uh, so then, uh, what then was the situation before Genesis 1-1? And what does it teach us about God and about ourselves? There are a lot that, there's a lot that we can learn. If we think about what happened before the first record of God's existence is put down to us or sent to us. So letter A, 
God existed in sublime glory. God existed in sublime glory. God is eternal. That's hard for us to comprehend because we can't comprehend it. You and I are bound by time and space. We really have no experience with eternity. We will one day. But at this point, we don't have any experience with eternity, and so we can't really relate to that. Um, a little bit later on, um, in, uh, under this very point, I, I have this, uh, this note. It says, if you want something baffling, uh, something, if you, if you want something to baffle your mind, meditate upon the concept of eternal. Think about that for a little while. What does it mean? Um, be awfully hard for us to explain what it means. And the reason for that is what I've already said. We have no experience with it. All we know is what we read in the Bible, that God is eternal. He has no beginning. Even though the word Genesis means beginning, that's not talking about God's beginning. That's talking about our beginning. And the beginning of creation. But before God created anything, he existed. And uh, we just cannot seem to comprehend that. Um, God is totally self-sufficient. He needs nothing more than himself in order to exist or to act. Think about that for a minute. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need his creation. He doesn't need the world. He doesn't need the universe. But for some reason, he created both. Which tells us that there, that there is a purpose in God's plan. Uh, God, God may be eternal. He may not need us uh, to either exist, exist or to act. But somehow he desired us. He desired the world. He desired what he created. Uh, and we being a part of that creation. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, God has a voluntary relation to everything. God, God has a voluntary relation to everything uh, he has made, but he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself. It's not necessary for God to have us, but God does have us. God needs nothing, neither the material universe nor human beings, and yet he created both. And so there must be a purpose for his creation of both of us. I made this statement. I'm going to go ahead and read it again. But if you want something to baffle your mind, meditate on the concept of eternal. That which is neither, has neither beginning nor ending. As creatures of time, we can easily focus on transient things around us. But it's difficult, if not impossible, to conceive of the eternal. Contem contemplating the nature and character of the triune God who always was, always is, and always will be, and who never changes is a task that overwhelms us. In the beginning, God. Think about that for a moment. As I was uh, studying for this lesson, and, and, I, and I, that, that little phrase, those first few words in the book of Genesis, they did baffle me because... Uh, because I was challenged to think about eternity for a little while. So I just sat at my desk and I tried to 
I tried to imagine what eternity is, and I couldn't get my arms around it. My brain wouldn't comprehend it. I just couldn't imagine what it was. Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. And in verse 2, he makes this statement. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth, and the world was, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. What a, what a comprehensive statement. From everlasting to everlasting, Moses said, you're God. What a wonderful thing. Frederick Farber, this is in your notes, he put it this way. Timeless, spaceless, single, lonely, yet sublimely three. Thou art grandly always only God in unity. And so the central tenet, the, uh, the, uh, the central tenet of the Bible is that God is eternal. He's perfect. But the central tenet of uh, process theology, maybe you've never heard that term before, but there's a, there is a theory called process theology, which is an old heresy who was dressed up in modern clothes. Um, it, it's a, uh, that central tenet of that is limited, is a limited God. God's limited. But he's in process of becoming a greater God. Think of that for a minute, if you will. But here's, here's the thing. If God is God, as we understand the word, and then he is eternal and needs nothing, and he is all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, in order to have a limited God, you must first redefine the word God, because by definition, God cannot be limited. God is unlimitless. And furthermore, if God is limited and he's getting better, then there must be some other power that's making him greater. Follow the logic of this for a moment. And that power would be greater than God, and therefore that power would be God. And, uh, and wouldn't that give us two gods instead of one God? If God could be limited, or if God is limited, but he's getting better, he's getting greater, there has to be some force to make him get better. And that force would have to be God. And so if that's the case, then we've got two gods. We've got God making God better. That doesn't make sense, does it? Well, neither does process theology, to tell you the truth. And uh, the God of the Bible is eternal. He had no beginning. He is infinite and knows no limitation in either time or space. He is perfect and cannot improve. He is immutable, he can't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, the God that Abraham worshiped was the eternal God, according to Genesis 21:33. Moses told the Israelites, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Uh, Habakkuk said that God is from everlasting. The apostle Paul called him the everlasting, or the eternal God. So all of the characters of the Bible who were godly men, and in some cases godly women, all recognize that God is eternal. 
And all of that was before the book of Genesis. Now, how long was, did God exist before the book of Genesis? For eternity. How long is that? I don't know. I can't comprehend it. I don't understand it. I'm bound by time and space. I don't know what eternity is. But someday I'll find out. And the God is eternal. Letter B. The divine trinity was a loving communion. The divine trinity was a loving communion. In the beginning, God would be... Uh, God, God would... In the beginning would be a startling statement to the citizens of the earth of the Chaldees. Why? Because, and by the way, that's where Abraham came from. And, um, uh, be, and the reason for that is because the Chaldeans and all their neighbors worshipped a, a, a galaxy of greater or lesser gods or goddesses. They had many gods. And a God with a small g, not a, not a large g, not a capital G. But the God of Genesis is the, is the only true God, and he has no rival gods. He, can't, he doesn't have to contend with rival gods, uh, such as we would hear of in myths and fables and so forth of the ancient world. Uh, this, um, this idea of Star Wars, you know, and the Force. Who are they talking about? The Force. You know, that's offensive to me. Um, God's not a force. He's a person. Uh, he, he's a God in three persons and not just a force. Why do we talk about a force? Let's talk about a God who has power, a God who is eternal, our God who never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll always, always be the same. So number one under B the Trinity is one God, but three persons. This one true God exists in three persons, God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then there's a myriad of verses of Scripture, and these are in your notes there, and I'm not going to take time to read any of them. You can look those up. But there are many, many verses of Scripture in the Bible that tell us about the Trinity, that give us the assurance that God is one, but he's three. Not three gods, but three persons. Uh, three separate persons in the Trinity. And so look some of those verses of Scripture up, if you would. And this doesn't mean uh, that one God manifests himself in three different forms. Or, or, that he, or that there are three gods. It means that one God exists in three persons who are equal in attributes and yet individual and distinct in offices and ministries. God the Father has a different office, a different ministry than God the Son has. And I'm going to review that here in just a minute. Or that God the Holy Spirit has. All three of the persons of the Trinity, they're all equal, they're co-equal. They have the same attributes, but they have a different ministry. And it's kind of like... A, no, I can't illustrate it there. You know, there's no illustration that can accurately illustrate the Trinity. Some people, you know, you've seen the three rings that interlock. 
God the Father at the top and then God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and they all kind of intertwine. You've seen that, haven't you, that illustration? That illustration breaks down because there's a part of the Son that's not the Father in that illustration. There's part of the Spirit that's not the Father or the Son in that illustration. You see what I'm saying? I wish I had a chalkboard here. I could do it for you. One of my uh, professors when I was in college said the only way that you can accurately illustrate, and he says in, in a sense this breaks down a little bit too, but he says the only way you can accur uh, accurately illustrate the Trinity is you draw a circle for the Father and then over top of the very lines of that circle draw another second circle for the Son and then draw a third for the Holy Spirit because they're co-equal and yet they have separate ministries, uh, separate operations. The Nicene Creed, which was written in 325, which gives us an idea that our, our church fathers, our early church fathers, had a right concept of the Trinity. Here's what the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, bringing in one substance, being in one substance with the Father and the Holy, Holy Ghost, and it goes on from there. Let me park on that word begotten for a moment. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was begotten. He was not made. I realize that uh, the verse in Galatians tells us he was made of a woman, but uh, that's, a different, that's a different word. But that word begotten <clears throat> makes Jesus Christ unique. And here's really what it means. It's, it's the Greek word monogenes. Well, you know what mono means. Mono means one or only. And genus means beginning or uh, in this case, born. And, and it has the idea of uniqueness. And what it really means is there's only one birth like the birth of Jesus Christ. There's no other birth ever like him. There never, there never has been and there never will be. And that's what the Greek word indicates. And the reason I want to park on that a little bit is because there's a version of the Bible that's becoming very popular among evangelicals, even among some fundamentalists. And maybe you're carrying it. If you are, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you this morning to get rid of it. And the reason I'm going to ask you to do that is because I think it denigrates the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And that's the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, don't raise your hand, but do any of you have an ESV? I believe you really ought to get rid of it. And here's the reason why. In the Johannan writings, the writings of John, five different times the word begotten appears with Jesus Christ. John 3.16 is one we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that phrase appears five different times in the Johannan writings. And if you have an ESB Bible, you can look up these verses and you'll see that the word begotten is not there. And it simply says that he's God's only son. The Greek word is in the text. 
Why didn't they translate it? I don't know. I can't explain why they didn't translate it, and I haven't found out. I haven't found anybody else, but that. But I haven't talked to everybody. I'm sure there's some that could probably tell me why they didn't translate it. But it's an inaccurate translation, and I believe with all my heart that it's a deliberate attempt to nullify the uniqueness of the birth of Christ. Anybody remember when the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, came out? That was back in the 50s. Um, some of you existed back in the 50s. I know that because you're as old as I am. <clears throat> Or at least you look as old as I am. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you, know why, you know why evangelicals rejected the RSV? It's because it denigrated the virgin birth of Christ. And we, and we look at that verse back in uh, Isaiah. Uh, what's the reference? 9-6, is it? Or 6-9? Uh, that uh, behold a virgin shall conceive well the RSV translated that a young woman and the, Greek, uh, the Hebrew word is Alma and can be translated young woman so it wasn't that the translation was corrupted but it's very clear from that passage it's talking about a virgin because that word is also used for the word virgin and that same verse is translated is used, used in the New Testament by <clears throat> used in the New Testament, and there it's translated virgin. And so we rejected the RSV basically because it denigrated the virgin birth of Christ, that, that wonderful doctrine. And I, for the life of me, I can't understand why so many evangelicals are using the ESV when it denigrates the uniqueness of the birth of Christ because that's what the word begotten indicates. It was a unique verse of uh, birth, different than any other. And uh, now I've taken a lot of time to say that, and because of that, I'm probably not going to get through this lesson, but I thought that was important. And uh, I do not accept in any way the ESV. And I regret that, that a lot of the churches down in Greenville have accepted that version of the Bible. Um, that's all I'll say about that, but anyway. Warren Wiersbe said this one time. He said, I heard a minister open a worship service by praying, Father, thank you for dying for us on the cross. Anything wrong with that statement? You don't have any takers? You're right. Wasn't the father that died on the cross? It was the son. Now, the son is God, right? But remember I said that each uh, member of the Godhead has a different function? It was the son's function to become man, to identify himself with us in human form, so he could bear our sins upon the cross. So it wasn't the Father. And so when we pray, and, and, and uh, sometimes, sometimes the way we talk sometimes, and maybe even the way we pray, we confuse the offices of the various uh, persons of the Trinity. 
even though they are co-equal. They have the same attributes, but they have different offices and different ministries. And uh, so Wiersbe continues by saying, but it was God the Son, not God the Father, who died for sinners on the cross. It is God the Holy Spirit who convicts sinners and brings them to, brings them to repentance and salvation. To subscribe and confuse the persons of the divine Godhead is to change what is taught in Scripture. And this is a dangerous thing to do, and I, and I, I agree with that statement. Number two under B, the Trinity is not clearly seen in the Old Testament. The doctrine of the Trinity wasn't revealed in the Old Testament because the emphasis in the Old Testament is that God, that the God of Israel is one God. And um, <clears throat> uncreated and unique, the only true God. Worshiping false gods, the false gods of their pagan neighbors was the great temptation and, uh, and it, was, it was the repeated sin of Israel. And so Moses and the, and the prophets hammered away on the, on the unity and the uniqueness of, of, the, uh, of Israel's God. And so the Trinity is not clearly taught in the Old Testament. However, uh, it is strongly implied in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, uh, the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Even today, faithful Jews recite the Shema. Let me read it for you. It's, uh, it's a verse of scripture, but it's, it's called by the Jews the Shema. Here, and that's um, the word Shema is, is the word here. God says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And so the God revealed in Scripture, he has no peers, he has no rivals. But the Old Testament gives glimpses of, uh, of the truth, uh, of that wonderful truth of the Trinity. For example, in the book of Genesis, in the first chapter, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 26, God says, let us make man. That's what it says in the King James. That's what it says in the Hebrew. It's in the plural sense. In the Hebrew language, there are two plurals. There is a plural form, which means two, only two, not three. But it's plural because there's one and two. Uh, there's the singular, and then there's the plural. And then there's another plural form that means more than two. It could be three, it could be five, it could be 17. But that more than two plurals, the one that's used there in those let us passages, and there's several of those in the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, there's several of those throughout the Old Testament where God says, let us. Well, what's he referring to when he says, let us? Well, what do we read in John chapter one? In the beginning was the word. And we find out later on there, and going down to verse 14, that the Word was Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. And so Jesus Christ had part in creation, as well as did the Holy Spirit. And that's the reason why God said, let us create man, let us make man on the earth. 
And so those let us passages throughout uh, the Old Testament give, give a clear reference and indication of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Um, number three, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. Uh, you, can look, you can read through the Bible several times and you'll never find the word Trinity, but the idea is there. You can read through the Bible many times and never find the word rapture, but we use it. It means to snatch away. Rapture means to snatch away. And that, that act is described for us in, in um, 1 Thessalonians, where God will snatch us away. Well, just because the word Trinity is not found in the Bible uh, is no indication that there's not a Trinity. It's just the word that we use to describe the Godhead. Uh, uh, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then um, letter C, the divine trinity planned redemption. This is before Genesis. The divine trinity planned redemption. The wonderful plan of redemption wasn't a divine afterthought. For God's people were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We read that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. God chose his people before the foundation of the world. And, um, and given by the Father to the Son to belong to his kingdom and to share his glory. Uh, the sacrificial death of, of his Son wasn't an accident. It was an appointment. Because we read in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 that that he was slain from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world, is the thought there. And so redemption was all planned before God even created us. You say, well, why did he do that? Well, he knew that his creation was going to fall. Nothing has ever occurred to God. Has that ever occurred to you? Nothing's ever occurred to God. God is all-knowing. He knew that his creation was not perfect. He knew that man would, was not, uh, man being imperfect, and, and he gave man a free will to think for himself and to, and to make decisions on his own, make his own choices. And he knew that Adam and Eve would make the wrong choice. So he planned for that before he even created them, before he even created the human race. And so redemption was planned in eternity, but the Trinity planned it together. Um, in the councils of eternity, the Godhead determined to create the world that would include human beings made in the image of God. The Father was involved in creation, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Uh, but the Son, Jesus Christ, uh, was also involved in creation. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and also Colossians 1, 16, and Hebrews 1, 2. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God hovered over the earth. Remember that? Genesis 1, 2. Also in Psalm 104, and verse 30. God didn't, create it, God didn't create a world because he needed anything, but that he might share his love with creatures who, unlike the angels, are made in the image of God and can respond willingly to his love. Why did God create us? There is a, there is a statement 
that we often refer to. Why did God create us? For his glory. You say, well, isn't that kind of ambitious? Well, he's God. He's God. God can do what he wants. But God needed something. God needed us to glorify him. And so God created us to glorify him. And uh, God created the universe to glorify him. To glorify him. That's why we are to praise him. That's why we are to exalt him. That's why we are to lift him up. That's our purpose here on earth is to glorify, is to glorify God. So the Godhead, when we speak of the Godhead, we're talking all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Godhead determined that the Son would come to earth to die for the sins of the world. Jesus came to do the Father's will. The words, of Je- the words that Jesus spoke were from the Father, according to his own testimony in John 14, 24. And the works that he did are commissioned by the Father and empowered by the Spirit. The Son glorifies the Father, John 14, 13, 17, 1, and 4. And the Spirit glorifies the Son, 16, 14, John 16, 14. And so the persons of the Holy Trinity work together to accomplish the divine will. They all work together. What's the, uh, what, what was the uh, headline that we used a little while ago? The divine Trinity was in loving communion. It all works together. The divine Trinity planned redemption. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the plan of salvation is Trinitarian. We're chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. And all of this is to the praise of his glory, according to uh, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 6, 12, and 14. The Father has given authority to the Son to give eternal life to those he has given to the Son. And all of this was planned before the world was ever created. Think of that. That brings us to Roman numeral 2, Genesis, redemption promised. God promised redemption for his creation. When God wrote the Bible, he didn't give us a cumbersome book of theology. It was divided up into various sections, section called God or creation or man or, or son or whatever. If you have a book on theology, you notice it's very nicely divided up in all of the, with all those topics. God didn't give us that. Man uh, compiled all of that. Instead, he gave us a story. He gave us a narrative that begins in eternity past, and Wearsby said, and ends in eternity future. But it really doesn't end. But I know what Wearsby meant by saying that. It began, in, it began in, in eternity past, and it goes on into eternity future. This is a narrative. And this is what the Bible is. It's a narrative. It all comes together uh, and, uh, and creates a story, the story of God, the story of God's creation, the story of God's eternal plan. 
and his working of that plan. In our Bible, we have uh, 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. And uh, so after describing in Genesis chapter 1, um, after, after describing creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, Moses lists seven generations that compile, uh, that, that comprise the book of Genesis or, or the narrative of the book of Genesis. And here they are. Uh, the heavens and the earth, Adam, and then Noah, and then Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, with emphasis on Shem, because Jesus came out of Shem. Um, and then Terah, the father of Abraham, and then Abraham was the father of Ishmael, and then Isaac uh, came, and then Esau, and then Jacob. And this is, the, this is the narrative that unfolds in the book of Genesis. Uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis deal with uh, humanity in general, and they focus on the four great events in those first, uh, first 11 chapters. Uh, the first event, of course, is creation. Then what came after creation? The fall of man. And then there was the flood. And then there was the rebellion at Babel. And then the rest of Genesis focuses on Israel in particular, the nation of Israel, uh, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then concludes with Joseph. And, and the story goes on from there. It's a story that flows, comes out of eternity past, flows through uh, our present time, uh, these thousands of years since creation, which probably has been about 6,000 years so far, maybe seven, and, uh, and not billions of years. That's another story. But anyway, as you study Genesis, we have to keep in mind that Joseph, Joseph didn't write a detailed history of each, each person or event. He recorded those parts of their lives that would achieve his purpose in explaining and developing the plan of God throughout the Bible. And it's wonderful how God put all of that together. You also notice that in Genesis, in the Genesis record, that when man is at his worst and reaches his lowest point, God steps in and gives a new beginning. Now, the beginning began in Genesis 1-1, beginning of man and the creation and then man. And then he had to destroy the human race, except for Noah, his wife, and their three sons and their wives, eight people. They were saved by water, it tells us in, in James. <clears throat> that that is, uh, they were brought through safety. They, were, they survived. And so um, G. Campbell Morgan put it this way, he says, the cycle in Genesis is this, generation, degeneration, and then regeneration. It's kind of interesting that we see that process throughout the history of mankind. Generation, regeneration, or degeneration, and then regeneration. And uh, you see, God didn't, God's creation of us, we, God didn't create perfect beings. His creation was perfect because it accomplishes his plan. 
but he didn't create perfect beings. Uh, for example, Cain killed Abel, but God gave Seth to continue that line. The earth became violent and wicked, so God wiped out humanity, and he chose Noah and his family to carry out his work. And then out of the earth of the Chaldees, uh, God called Abraham and Sarah, gave them a son by the name of Isaac, and the, and the future of God's plan of salvation rested with his son, uh, with that son, Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Esau and Jacob, and God rejected Esau, and he chose Jacob to build the 12 tribes of Israel and to inherit the covenant blessing. In other words, from beginning to end. Genesis is a story of God's sovereign will and his electing grace. And this doesn't suggest that persons in the story uh, were, were robots because they made awful mistakes throughout the course of their life. Uh, <clears throat> They even tried to thwart God's plan. But whenever people resisted God's rule, he overruled and accomplished his divine purpose anyway. We cannot thwart God's plan. Joe Biden can't, can't thwart God's plan. The liberal Democrats can't do it. Hitler couldn't do it. He tried to. Mussolini didn't accomplish it. Uh... The Amalekites didn't do it. You cannot thwart God's plan. He's going to work his plan in spite of us. We should never lose sight of that fact, that God will work his plans. In Psalm 33 and verse 11, it says this, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Nothing is going to harm God's plan. God's going to work out his plan. And it's wonderful. I've, uh, you, have a, you have a diagram there in your notes that, <clears throat> that contrasts the book of Genesis with the book of Revelation. God began his plan for the human race back in the book of Genesis. It was developed before Genesis in, uh, in, the, council, in the eternal counsel of God, of the Godhead. But look at, look at how the plan of God unfolds and then and then, uh, and then folds into the book of Revelation. And for, for example, the first heaven and the earth is found in Genesis. The new heaven and the new earth is found in Revelation. The first garden and the tree of life is in Genesis. The garden city and the tree of life is available in the book of Revelation. The first marriage in the book of Genesis, the last marriage is found in Revelation. Satan tempts evil to sin in Genesis. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation. Death enters the scene in Genesis, but in Revelation there's no more death. Uh, Babylon is built in Genesis. Babylon is destroyed in Revelation. The Redeemer is promised in Genesis, and the, and the Redeemer reigns in Revelation. Isn't that wonderful? God is still working out his plan. But the fact that what was revealed in Genesis is as the beginning of his plan is the assurance that what he has revealed in Revelation as the completion of his plans, plans will become a future reality. God will complete what he began.
that, that, that statement's not in your notes. I actually, I, I, write, I wrote that after I had your, your notes printed. But I think that's worth noting. And let me read it to you again. I think it's good. I think Worsby should have put it in his notes. I'm not bragging because I wrote it. It's just that God gave me that thought. And I, let me give it to you again. God is still working out his plan. But the, but the fact that what he revealed in Genesis as the beginning of his plan is the assurance that what he has revealed in Revelation as the completion of his plan will also become a reality in the future. We can count on it. What God began in Genesis 1-1, he will complete. We have the assurance of that. And we don't have to bite our fingernails, pull our hair out, which some of you would have a problem doing, since God's already pulled it out, or your wife did, I'm not sure which, but anyway. Number three, I got one minute to give you this, okay? By the way, <clears throat> since I printed your notes, I've divided this third section into three parts. And I'll give you those three parts if you want to write them into your outline. Number three, after Genesis, redemption accomplished. And under that I put letter A, God gave a promise, Genesis 3.15. And uh, let me read that promise to you real quick. Genesis chapter 3 and uh, verse 15 says this, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You realize that's the first promise of redemption we have in the Bible? And then that theme is carried throughout the Bible right on up to the book of Revelation. God has given us a promise of redemption. Uh, that the redemption will be accomplished. Um, where would that promise come from? Well, the Redeemer will be a Jew. Uh, come from Abraham through the miracle, uh, through the miracle of God, Abraham and Sarah. And Isaac uh, was the father of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who founded the 12 tribes of Israel. And then one would give that Savior, uh, give us the Savior. And that, of course, was Judah and so forth. The second point, this would come under the paragraph that starts um, after the tragic era, after the, uh, after the tragic era of the rule of the judges, the kings, and so forth. You can read that for yourself. I left that in your notes. Put, uh, put letter B. Satan tried to thwart God's promise. God gave a promise, but then secondly, Satan tried to thwart that promise. And throughout the Old Testament, we see Satan doing that. And you can read that there in your notes. It's all there in your notes. God tried, Satan tried to destroy what God promised he would do. But then thirdly, uh, this comes after the paragraph that begins on the last four occasions that God aligned was thwarted with extinction. And then after that paragraph, you put letter C, God fulfilled the promise. Praise God. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says this, 
when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. And then the angel announced to the shepherds for unto you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. He was born. So God will complete his plan. God, God's plan is not going to be thwarted. But it all began before Genesis. And then, uh, so next Sunday, <clears throat> we're going to join Moses and read, this, uh, read his magnificent inspired record of the creation of the heaven and the earth. And so we'll get into uh, Genesis, first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis next Sunday. Father, thank you for your wonderful plan. Man could never have devised such a magnificent plan. And God, you created us to glorify you, and you deserve that glory. We don't. We don't deserve that. We don't even deserve to be your sons, but Lord, you chose us to be your sons, and we're thankful for that. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for allowing your son to go to the cross in our place and bear the penalty of our sins there, that we may receive the forgiveness of it. And God, we pray that as we go through this study, unfolding your wonderful, marvelous plan, that all of that will draw us closer to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.